The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Today in our study of the Ten Commandments, we come to the final message on the Sixth Commandment. This is in the 13th verse of Exodus chapter 20. This is the commandment that says, Thou shalt not kill. Our study is about the sanctity of life, and this furnishes us with the supreme reason that we should not take the life of another person, that life is sacred, life is precious, Only God can take it away because God is the only one who can give life. Uh, If it were possible for humans to give life, then we might think that we have the right to take it any time that we please. But because we can't, that right belongs to God alone. He is the life giver and only God can take it away. We, We can only take life at God's command. It's only in lawful ways that are dictated by the Word of God. And when I, when I make that statement, we have to come to a logical conclusion that there must be more to these words in that 13th verse that says, Thou shalt not kill, because we read a little bit further into the Bible and we see just not long after this that lives were taken. Lives were taken because of punishment for crimes. And, of course, right after Israel was given the law, Uh, They met people on their way as they traveled through the wilderness who wanted to stop them from making it to the promised land. And they got into war with people and they fought with them. And then when they went into the land of Canaan, there was no way that they could possess the land unless they overcame the enemies that were there. Those people would not leave willingly. And so God said, what you must do, you've got to kill them. And Maybe we don't understand all of this, but he said, you've got to kill them all. At times he said that. He said, you can't live, leave a living soul in the land. And so we look at the commandment and we would think, well, how does this match up to the holiness of God? Because how can God possibly tell people that it's all right to kill someone? I mean, if that is against his own commandment, then he can't be God because he is the holy God and he is the model of righteousness for us. So how is it possible then that life can be taken? So we do need to see here, we understand that this is a command that needs to be investigated. And that's what we've done over the past three messages. We've examined this and we've learned that the Hebrew word for kill in this verse has no, no reference to war. It doesn't talk about killing in war. It doesn't have a reference to retribution for Uh, taking a life in punishment of crime, uh, killing or executing a murderer. It's not talking about that kind of thing. It's not talking about taking the life of animals. And neither does it have anything to do when uh, God, as I should say, is never the subject of this verb. We never find God the subject of this word, Hebrew word, kill, not God or angels. So this is a command then that refers to murder. It means to take life without a just cause. And that cause must be God's cause in the execution of righteousness because he is the only one who has the right to control the lives of people that he created. So this is what we've done in our study of the Sixth Commandment. We've examined the meaning of it and we've looked at many different acts that are committed by wicked people that the Bible calls murder. And we've also learned this, that there are people 
who don't believe that they are wicked, and yet they are guilty of murder. What the Bible says is murder. They actually believe that they are just and more equitable by allowing the lives of the most innocent to be taken. Yesterday, the depravity of the human heart was in display in all of its splendor. And that's when there were millions of women across this country who were protesting the inauguration or whatever that they were up to. And one of the things that was on their mind, one of the things they were protesting was to uphold the right to kill. The upright, to uphold the right to murder babies. And so you have people who, who say that we can take a baby out of the womb, we can crush its head, pull off the baby's limbs to destroy its life. And in many cases that takes place past the point where they say that the development of fetus has reached the place that it can actually feel pain. Is the fetus really a human life? Well, the Bible answers that question. It tells us that life begins at conception. In the womb is the Bible's definition of the beginning of life. And if we wanted to argue that point about whether it actually a fetus is a living soul, that it is a human being when it's in those very early stages, surely we would not be able to argue this, that when it comes to the point that it can feel pain, that most certainly it's a human life. And that's murder to take that baby's life. But that doesn't stop the killing. There, there isn't a prick of conscience for people that kill babies. But the same people who have no conscience about killing babies will plead for the life of murderers on, on death row. They'll pick it against the death penalty because that person they're waiting to be injected with a lethal chemical that will take his life might feel just a twinge of pain as he dies for a murder that he's guilty of. So I'm telling you this because what we try to do is to distance ourselves from the sin of murder. What society tries to do is to, is to hide this, to hide behind a false piety. It claims innocence when we do violence against the most helpless. And so we say, well, this commandment applies to others. But the Bible says that no murderer shall enter the kingdom of God. Now, in the last message, I showed you how that Jesus brought the whole human race before the judgment bar. And there he pronounced a verdict of guilty upon all. That there aren't any commands in this list that we haven't broken. The command against murder is not an exception. Instead of being the command that we would think that we're the least likely to break this commandment, it might turn out to be that this is the one that we're most guilty of. The most frequently we're guilty of this. And you say, well, how is that possible? Because I've never taken the life of another person. And this is when Jesus taught that murder is in the heart. That you don't have to physically kill someone. He raised the bar on this. He set a higher standard than we can meet. And he said that if you are angry with a person, if you wish him harm in any way, that you're guilty of murder. And there isn't a person in this room that hasn't at some time clenched his fist, tightened his jaw because of anger. And admittedly, most of us are able to restrain ourselves. We don't physically strike another person. But none of us actually controls our emotions all of the time. You might not strike, but our anger boils over. You raise your voice, you curse at someone, you speak hurtful words. 
And if you don't do that, then under your breath you're seething. And Jesus said, if you do that, you're actually guilty of murder. And I didn't define it that way. Jesus did. Just read the New Testament as we did last week. And if you accept the truth of Jesus on any subject, especially the one of salvation, then you have to believe him on this as well, that all of us are guilty of breaking this command. So we can't distance ourselves from it any more than we can say, well, we've kept the other commandments, that we've never dishonored God in the first, second, or the third commandments. Yet we find that we all are guilty. And this is another one of the commandments that drives a nail into the coffin of our condemnation. The Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so we'll condemn the murderer in prison without admitting that we're guilty of the very same root of sin that caused him to be there. And so the purpose of this command, as all the others are, is to drive us to our knees to plead for God's mercy. The Apostle Paul wrote about this, that before he became a Christian, he thought that he was a good man. Standing before the law, he thought that he was blameless. He, he thought that he was living a, a good life, and his life was acceptable to God. And if you were to put any of our lives up against the Apostle Paul, he comes out as a shining example of obedience. But then one day, in his overzealousness, he met Jesus Christ. And then the teachings of Christ penetrated his soul. And that's when he began to realize that he had never met God's standard. Jesus' interpretations of the law showed him that he was guilty. And so his response to the new understanding of God's requirements was to say, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And what he meant was that he really understood those commandments that he thought that he kept. He hadn't kept at all. And he explained that when those, he saw the meaning of those commandments, it was like he died, that he was being put to death by them. And that's what the law of God does. It kills all of our self-righteousness. And it puts before us, uh, uh, it buries, I should say, our goodness under an avalanche of expectations that we cannot meet. And so if you think that you're doing well, if you think everything's going to be fine, if you think you're worth going to heaven that you'll be okay, stop thinking that way. You can't think that way. The Bible says you're dead wrong, and the law won't let you think that way because the law is designed to drive us to despair. You've sinned, you've fallen short of the glory of God, and the wrath of God is on you. That's the Word of God. So your only hope, then, is to trust Christ. That's to repent of your sins and trust Him to save you from them. And friends, this is how law and grace work perfectly together. This is how the gospel comes out of the Ten Commandments. The law condemns, it establishes guilt, and the only way that it can be overcome is by God's grace. Now, in, in these discussions of the command, we've drawn out all of the negative aspects of it. Back in the beginning of these messages a few months ago, uh, I told you that every command has a positive and a negative meaning. If a commandment says, thou shalt not, then there's also another side to that. If you shall not, then there's something that you shall do. If it says you shall, then it also includes in the commandment something that you should not do. So that means that we've not understood or obeyed this command until we've taken it both ways. That we resist the negative 
and we embrace the positive. Now, the command is a negative one. Thou shalt not kill. So the negative side says, don't do it. Well, if we're not to kill, then what are we to do? The positive side of the commandment is that we are to preserve life. To the best of our ability, do everything that we can within God's power to preserve life. Because life is sacred to God. Now, in this final message today, that's what we're going to look at. I want to look at the positive side of this command. We've discussed previously the crime of murder and the contrast of murder. In the last message, I talked to you about your contribution to murder that had to do with anger. And because we're all guilty, we need to look at this fourth area of discussion, which is your correction of murder. What do you do on the positive side of this command? Well, your correction is to have a change of heart. If murder is in the heart of every person, what is it going to take to stop murder? It takes a change of heart. The natural heart is wicked. We've already proved that. First uh, John, John said, Don't be like Cain who killed his brother Abel. And that seems like a very strange thing that he would say to the people. Don't be like Cain who killed his brother Abel. Why would he say that? That, that seems to be kind of an off-the-wall off remark to people that probably have never killed anybody and had no intentions of it. But what he meant was this whole thing about the heart, that everybody is capable of this because murder is in the human heart. But if you're a Christian... If you've trusted Christ, then he's given you a new heart. You've been given a new clean heart. The psalmist pleaded with God about his heart, and he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, I will put my law into their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God. So I want you to understand that when we talk about keeping commandments, what we do now is to shut off the conversation to those who don't know Christ. There isn't a, any point in taking this any further for people that don't know Christ because you can't keep the commandments of God without knowing Jesus Christ. And so we change the focus to speak now to only the redeemed people of God. And that's because you've been given a new heart and you have within you everything that's necessary to make all the corrections to conform to Christ's law that's written upon your heart. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, verse number 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. In Philippians 4.13, he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Only Christians are the subject of those verses. You have been enabled to obey this command because Christ's Spirit lives in you. And it's the Holy Spirit that sanctifies you to every good work. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the underlying principle in the second half of the Decalogue? What is that underlying principle? Well, I hope that you, you would get it right, because I've repeatedly emphasized the two divisions of the law. In the first division of the law, the Bible tells us that we are to love God. And in the second division of the law, it is to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
So all of the law is broken up into those two particular areas. Those are the pillars that undergird the entire law. And so the principle is to love your neighbor's life. Do everything that you can to support him and to sustain your neighbor's life. You shall not kill him because his life is sacred. He's made in the image of God. Jesus said that whatever you do to others, it's as if you did it to him. And so every good that you do, every evil that you do to another person, it's the same as if you did it to Christ. Now that's a very sobering thought. And if we keep that thought in our minds at all times, I think that we, we would think twice before we would ever do harm to another person or think ill of them. The Westminster Larger Catechism in the 135th question, ask this, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? Let me just give you a summary of what that catechism says uh, about the positive application. What does this sixth commandment tell us to do? Let me read for you. The commandment requires us to do our best to make every lawful effort to preserve our life and the lives of others. We do this by not thinking about or planning against, by controlling our emotions and avoiding opportunities, temptations, or actions that would promote or lead to the unjust taking of someone's life. In the pursuit of this goal, we must defend others from violence, patiently endure the afflictions of God's hands, have a quiet mind and a cheerful spirit, practice temperance in the way that we eat, drink, take medication, sleep, work, and play. We should also harbor charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, and kindness. Our speech and behavior should be peaceful, mild, and courteous. We should be tolerant of others, to be ready to be reconciled, to patiently put up with and forgive injuries against us and return good for evil. Finally, we should provide aid and comfort to those in distress as well as protect and defend the innocent. Now that, that statement reads like a summary of the 21 epistles of the New Testament. It reads like a summary of Jesus' life. It's the positive outworking of the life of Christ in us. And so the highest expression of Christianity that you can make in front of the world is the treatment that you give to other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. So let's just break down a few things from that statement that helps us to fulfill the duties of this sixth commandment. So what do we do first in relation to this commandment? The Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself. So what do we have to do first? First of all, we have to respect our own lives. Respect your life. I mean, love your neighbor, it says, as yourself. And so the second greatest commandment could never work unless you respect yourself. You must regard the sanctity of your life before you can regard the sanctity of the life of others. Now, we have to use a lot of caution when we talk this way because we're not speaking of an egotistical love. This is not uh, narcissism that we're talking about. The idea is that you preserve and protect your life. And as you know, the Scriptures divide life into two different, ca two different categories. There's the physical life and there is the spiritual life. And so, first of all, we have to regard our physical life. And you may have noticed as I was reading that statement, it talked about things that we eat, what we drink, how we sleep, work, and play. All those are considered in what we do about our 
physical life. And that's telling us that what you need to do is to take care of your body. Why do you need to be so concerned about your body? Because your body is the place that houses your soul. And if your body is not kept up and and kept healthy for the Lord, then you can't be as effective for Christ to do His work. If you abuse your body, you can't do the work of Christ. Psalm 127 verse 2 says, It's vain for you to rise up early and to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so He giveth His his beloved sleep. Now that's just talking about us using some common sense about getting enough sleep that we need, And you read on in the Scriptures and you'll find it talks about uh, uh, diseases that can come to the body because of immorality. It talks about ruining our physical and mental health. It It talks about drinking and overeating. Paul even had a comment about exercise. He said that it helps. Respect the body that God gave you because it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what we ought not to do is continually wear out our bodies by spending undue amounts of time watching television or playing video games, using tablets and computers and smartphones and really just putting in too many hours to try and get ahead of everybody else as if this life is all that we needed to be concerned about. The more that we wear the body down, the less energy that we'll have to use in the service of Christ. So the Bible teaches that our physical body is certainly important. But then it tells us that the spiritual man, the spiritual part of you, is far more important than the body. And that part tells us that what we need to do is to take care of our soul. Now, in each of us, God has put an innate desire to preserve our physical lives. You know that. I think I I explained this before. You you know this. You're not going to walk out across the street and not look both ways. You respect your life. God has put that desire in you to preserve your life. Well, if we have a desire to, to protect our physical life, then we certainly ought to understand that we need to protect our soul, the eternal life of the soul. That's extremely important. And that's the part that atheists really don't understand. They don't understand why people are so concerned about these things, about the afterlife, but that's something that God has put naturally into the human heart. We know that there's something that comes after this life. And so we want to protect our souls, the spiritual side of us, because we're going to live in eternity. We're going to live forever in eternity. Now, only Christians then can correctly understand the afterlife. Christ gave his life to preserve the soul. And the sanctity of the soul is primary. That's actually why the sinful body dies. Uh, It's in order to give the soul a new house to live in. To get rid of this body that is corrupted by sin. That's why we die. Now let let me show this to you in 2 Corinthians. If you turn there to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And before we read the passage, let me just explain some of the terms that are used here. So that you'll understand as we read it. You'll see this term, you'll see earthly house. Now, earthly house is not the street where you live and the house that you live in. Earthly house means your body. It says tabernacle in these verses. Tabernacle also refers to the place that houses your soul, that is your body. And then it says that we have a building of God that is not made with hands. And that refers to the new body that's going to be given to Christians at the resurrection. 
Now, we begin reading in verse number 1 with those explanations in mind. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this body, of this tabernacle were dissolved, if it dies, that we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven, that is that redeemed body that Christ is going to give. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon. That mortality might be swallowed up of life. In these verses, the eternal soul is the focus. That's why Paul said in that place that bodily exercise is profitable, but he explains that that doesn't touch the importance of what you do for your soul. Godliness is the principal thing. Holiness is the attitude of the soul, and we have to cultivate that holiness and righteousness for ourselves, not just for us, but for the good of others. The most usefulness that you will be for others is not the good deed of going out and mowing somebody's lawn. It's the good deed of living righteously in front of that person. It's to be an example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you use the mowing of his lawn just to show that you love him for the purpose of showing forth something that will lead him to Christ. Now, what a spiritually good, good, good maintained spiritual life will do is to draw people to Christ. That's, that's the object of this. A bad life draws or just sends them or, or, or drives them away from Christ. What people see in Christians that, that don't live like Christians ought to live is hypocrisy. And, and, and what they do is they look at the Christian promises that you claim to live by as being a phantom. It hasn't done anything for you. We're not going to win everybody that we meet by a good life. But we're going to win none of them by a bad life. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And so when you take care of your soul, you're actually taking care of the souls of others. And that's because from your soul comes the issues of life. From it you have the ability to, to witness and to teach and you have the ability to protect. You have the ability to be a good husband and a good wife. All of that flows out of a soul that's well-maintained. As I said, you look through the 21 epistles of the New Testament and you find the very same encouragement, all kinds of different things that you do in order for the health of your soul. And so this is the place that you start. You look to yourself, you look at your neighbor, and you look to yourself to help him. You guard your spiritual life and you make sure that it's of the quality that will be helpful to others. It's not about how you can exalt yourself above others. It's how that you can use your life to benefit others, to lift them up and to make them closer to God through faith in Jesus Christ. So good maintenance of the soul will work for the lost that you live around every day. And it also works for the saved people that you know. It helps them as well. It encourages. Your life can encourage or it can discourage people. You can't think of them and help them if you don't have the mind of Christ. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man 
upon his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. So that's one of the positive aspects of the command. Love your soul as you love the souls of others. Secondly, what are we to do? Well, in, in this explanation of that 135th question of the Catechism, it says that you need to reconcile to people. That's the second thing, reconcile to your brother. Well, let's go back to what we talked about last week. In Matthew, Jesus taught the Pharisees about anger. Now, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 5, this is where Jesus raised the bar so high that the Jews couldn't get over it. He gave a correct interpretation of the law. He said, you are guilty of murder. And he said that because murder is an attitude of the heart that's expressed in anger. And then he went on to their practice, and he gave a concrete example of the types of things that they did that just weren't right. Their practice was to take a gift to the altar. And so they thought that they were right with God if they made a sacrifice. But sacrifice with a bad heart, without the motive of the heart being right, is no good. You can't go and ask God for forgiveness of your sins if you go with the wrong motive, if you have a wrong heart. If you haven't done what you should to correct the wrongs that you've done to others, then don't go to God and ask Him for forgiveness. This is basically what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, 23-25. He says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way, First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Many people want to buy their way out of sin. They want to bargain with God. They want to bargain over the forgiveness of God. They do that rather than dealing with the problem that's deep down in the heart. So this is what these Jews did that Jesus was talking with. They, they would bring their offerings, they would bring their tithes, and they would lay them at the altar. And because they did that, they, they said, we're okay. We're okay. That's, that's all that we need to do. It's like, it's like a person who goes to a priest, and he says, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And the priest says to him, well, I can help you with that. Say five Hail Marys. Say ten, our fathers, and then put $50 into the collection plate. And so that's what he does. And he goes out, and what does he do? He goes and sends more until he's accumulated enough sins to come back again and pay up to get his forgiveness. So he's essentially just bargained with God for forgiveness. There is no change of heart. There's no sense that anything has happened on the inside that's actually made him clean. And so thus, he makes no real sacrifice. He hasn't sacrificed his life to God by doing what God wants him to do. So there's no connection there between his sacrifice and forgiveness. So Jesus taught that if you want to be right, you've got to fix what's wrong. You've got to take care of what you've done wrong. You've got to go and make this thing right with your brother. And if you love him, that's what you'll do. That's the attitude of a sanctified man. His heart is different. He cares about What's gone on? What's happened to that other person? He can't live with himself if he hurts his brother. Remember that story about Zacchaeus? We have a lot of the children in services today. I know that you know about Zacchaeus. 
He was that tiny little tax collector who was very big about cheating people. He was an extortioner, as the tax collectors were at that time, publicans. Maybe they're not much different today, but they were extortioners. And we talk about the IRS. The IRS is really the ERS, I think, the Extortion Revenue Service. Uh, so this is the way that Zacchaeus was. He was an extortioner. He was a cheat. But then God saved him. God saved him. You know what the Lord did to his heart? As soon as he met the Lord and he knew the wrong that he had done, he said, I've got to make it right with everybody else. He said, the ones that I have cheated, if I have cheated anyone, then I will restore four times what I've taken from him unjustly. And oh, had he taken from people unjustly, I suspect that Zacchaeus had to clean out his bank account to right all the wrongs. This is what you do. If you love your fellow man, you won't be satisfied until you make things right with him. The catechism said, be ready to be reconciled. But it goes further than that. And the Bible goes further. When you've done something against someone, you make it right. But then it also teaches when somebody does something against you, don't rush out and blast him because he doesn't make it up to you. And that you don't do it because a new heart yields a new attitude. A new attitude is to rush out to make it right where you did wrong, but then chill out when someone does wrong against you. You know what that's called? That's called forbearance. It's forbearance. It's forgiveness without asking what others did to you to be made right. And you know what it is? Colossians explains it. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. This is the way that Christ forgave. He forgave you without asking you to do anything for him. And most importantly... If you're going to be like Christ, then you've got to act the way that he acts. The psalmist said, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. And as if we didn't get it the first time, he repeats in the 145th Psalm, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. That's the way that Jesus Christ acted. Be slow to anger. Why? Because anger is murder. So you don't want to be quick to jump on people. If they wrong you, then do what Christ did. He bore all of the shame and disgrace of all the things that we've done against Him. And He forgave us of all of our sins. And He did that while we were still in our sins. But then wait, the Bible goes further than this. It tells us to forgive and don't do it grudgingly. Don't do it because you have to, but do it because you want to. Do it cheerfully. Be thankful that you can forgive in the way that Christ forgave. And if your heart is not that kind of a heart, you can't come and worship God because He's not going to count the gift that you bring to the altar. It, it's no good unless you do it exactly the way that Christ did it. So we've got to take care of that first. Patiently put up and forgive the injuries that are made against you. Love other people by being reconciled to them. Don't let there be anything between you and them that produces a bitter spirit. If he doesn't act rightly, that doesn't matter. Be bigger than the other person. 
act rightly toward them. So what's the quality of this love? Well, Paul explains it very well in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, where he said, Charity, that is love, suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. That's a great guide for every Christian. Now thirdly, and we end the exposition of the sixth commandment with this, and that is we are to resemble God. If you are to love as God loves, then you must proceed the way that God proceeds. How do you... How do you love your brother and value his life? You give him what he needs to sustain life. Relieve him of his burdens. Galatians 6 verse 2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. And do what? Fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what is this law of Christ? What, what does he mean? James explains in James 2.8, if ye fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. That's the royal law of King Jesus. His kingdom is a kingdom of laws. Now, can you guess what those laws are? The Ten Commandments. I hope that you would get that. The Ten Commandments. That's the law of Christ's kingdom. How else do we resemble God? What does He do? God always supplies our needs. If you're going to be like God, you've got to help supply the needs of others. Thomas Watson said, works of charity evidence grace. God is a God of grace. And so how are you going to judge your faith? Is your faith a real faith? How are you going to judge that? Well, the answer to it is do the works of God. Do what God did. James 2.18 says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. And I will show thee my faith by my works. Now the best part of doing things for others is that you never lose. You can't lose. You expend yourself for others. You, you may get all used up in giving to others, but you haven't lost anything. Because God multiplies back to you everything that you give up. And it may not come back to you in money, because money is not the thing that satisfies God's in the business of contentment, and so he gives back to you in ways that will satisfy you and make you content. And so it comes back to you in peace and serenity and that contentment of being close to God with a warmth of heart that you can't get in any other way. The, these are acts that are soul-fulfilling. This is what makes a Christian feel good about knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just your own salvation, but what you can do for other people and express the love of Christ to them. And then know this also, that when you resemble God and do for others, it will always come back to you in your time of need. I want to show you something in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, here there are some conditions for receiving help. And this is a very specific example, but there's a lesson for all of us in this when Paul wrote to Timothy about the support of widows. And there was a very interesting condition that he put upon this. To help the widows, he said, you need to do this. 1 Timothy 5, verse 9. Let not a widow be taken into the number 
under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works. If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. Now there he gives permission. He says, you can take a widow under the watch care of the church if she's at least 60 years old under these conditions. She must be someone who has shown herself to be faithful to help others. She's raised her children well. She washed the saints' feet. That is, she is hospitable to other people. She helped them. And he says, if she does that, has done that, then you can help her. Now, the principle that he's teaching is that the good that you do for others is going to come back to you in your time of need. You look at the example in the Old Testament of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. What did she do? When she was down to the very last that she had, Elijah said to her, well, you go and make me something to eat first. She didn't have anything left to feed herself or her son, and he said, you go and make me something to eat first. And when she took care of him, what happened to her? She received a blessing back from God. She received more than she could hope for. And even when her son died, Elijah brought him back to life. Now, if we look at that, that's a very specific case for a specific circumstance, but it teaches that we need to be faithful to help others. And if we do, then God will be sure that we're taken care of. 2 Corinthians 9 says, Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, let him, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. He goes on in the 10th verse, Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. But then the Bible gives us the other side of that. What happens if you don't do any of that? Proverbs tells us in the 11th chapter, There is that scattereth and yet increaseth, and there is that withholdeth more than is meat, that is more than you should, but it tendeth to poverty. The liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. He that withholdeth corn, the people shall curse him. But blessing shall be upon the head of him that selleth it. And then in Proverbs 21, verse 13, Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. So this is what you could do. You can hold on to all of your stuff, you can keep all of it for yourself, but it tends to nothingness. It tends to poverty. Oh, you'll still have your stuff. And you'll die with your stuff, but you won't have anything else. You won't have what satisfies the heart of a Christian, and that's fellowship with God and fellowship with your fellow man. So that's the positive side of the command. God has good things in store for those who obey Him. Thou shalt not kill. Instead... Thou shalt preserve life. Let's not live according to this culture of death that's all around us. This country, this world is a culture of death. The world is always trying to kill something. If it's inconvenient for you, just kill it and get rid of it. But God said no. Life is sacred. Preserve life at all costs. Count life sacred. 
Look to yourself physically and to others physically and also help them spiritually. Make sure that you treat people well and give them the opportunity of eternal life by showing a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in front of them. Be what God wants you to be in living the gospel of Christ. So the basic principle behind all of this is what we read in Genesis 9 where it said that man is made in the image of God. And that's the basis behind the sanctity of life. All of us are made in the image of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for the message that we have from your word. Lord, in three weeks we looked at all kinds of negative aspects of this command. But now we come today to look at the positive side of this. What do you expect to us to do? It's not just to stay away from the anger, the murder of the heart, and all of those things, but to have a positive outworking of your Spirit in us, to help other people, to lay down our lives for others, to give of ourselves. And that's the way that we show the life of Christ, because that's what he did. He came to give his life as a ransom for our sins and to save us, save our unworthy souls from a law that will condemn us because we can't keep it perfectly. We're justly condemned and only you can save us. Grace and law working together. We thank you, Lord, that it works that way. We give you all the praise and the glory for it. Speak to our hearts today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.